Welcome to The Deep Dive. I'm your host, Philip McKenzie. I'm an anthropologist strategist with a focus on culture and humanity-centered design. I'm Brooklyn-born and Brooklyn-made. Every week, I will bring you guests from a wide variety of backgrounds who, despite their different areas of expertise, share traits in common. They aim high, push boundaries, and make things happen. Their experiences drive insights. On today's episode of The Deep Dive, I'm joined by Peter S. Goodman. Peter is the global economic correspondent for The New York Times, based in New York. He appears regularly on the daily podcast, as well as major broadcast outlets like CNN, the BBC, Sky News, MSNBC, and Monocle Radio. And obviously, he's now on The Deep Dive. He was previously executive global news and business editor of the Huffington Post, where he oversaw award-winning investigative international business and technology reporting. He's the author of the new book, Davos Man, How the Billionaires Devoured the World, and that's where we're going to be spending the majority of our time. Peter, welcome to The Deep Dive. How are you? Thanks so much for having me. I'm great. How are you doing? I'm doing fantastic. You know, this book was a great read. It is extremely irritating. So it took me it took me longer to it worked then. Yeah, it worked. Yeah, it took me longer to read than usual. I, I am admittedly a pretty fast reader. I often have to read for the purposes of the show and I also read a lot for pleasure. So my book is my house is filled with books everywhere overflowing. So it doesn't typically take me long to read stuff. This took me longer than it should than it usually would have because I kept putting it down filled with incandescent rage. Hmm. Yeah, <laughs> so, I hear you. So that was a, a function of why it took me so long to get through it, not for the quality and the credit of the writing, which was actually really fantastic and very interesting. I appreciate that. So I have a lot to cover because I think at a time when we're we're seeing a global conflict in the Ukraine, there's elements of your book that in a way to me speak to the way in which the global community is thinking about from an economic perspective, putting pressure on Russia, for example. So we'll get to all that later, but this is very prescient and timely conversation is my point. So let's start at the beginning. It's a big, great place to start, as Julie Andrews says in Sound of Music. <laughs> um, Davos Man, what is your definition and what is the origin of this idea of Davos Man? So Davos Man is this term that was coined by the political scientist Samuel Huntington back in 2004. And he was using it to refer to people who go to the World Economic Forum in Davos, Switzerland. That's this annual gathering of the most powerful, wealthiest people on earth. We're talking billionaires, heads of state, the odd celebrity, along with uh, various activists and academics. But I use it to refer not only to people go to the forum, but people who essentially set the rules for the rest of us. We're talking billionaires who are not content to simply end up with most of the wealth. They want our adulation. They've sold us on this idea that they are the solution to life's problems, and we should be grateful for them having so much wealth because that allows them to do more good. And this is the idea that they've insinuated into political discourse, not just in the United States, but in much of the developed world. This idea that when the rules are organized around directing more wealth to the people who already have most of it, uh, the benefits just magically trickle down to everyone else, something that in reality has happened zero times. And 
you know, what's, what's interesting in that is it sounds like Davos man as a moniker is not just an identity, but it's an ideology. And I want to give you an opportunity to kind of walk through that a little bit, because it seems that the existence of, of Davos man, and it could also be Davos, Davos woman. There's lots of, there's lots of people who ascribe to these there are a few, yeah. ideas that are, that are not gender-based. It seems like the neoliberal project, as it is presently constructed, or at least in this stage of it, needs Davos man to exist. Yeah, you know, I would push back a little bit on the idea that it's an ideology because it's so malleable. I mean, Davos man is fundamentally committed to tax cuts and deregulation. Like this is this is the consistent message of Davos man that when we when we strip away the power of the state and we reduce taxes and the benefits flow to the wealthiest people, uh, then we get dynamism and innovation and benefits, again, that trickle down throughout society. And Davos Man is for that, but Davos Man will be for you know government coming to the rescue of companies when his assets are threatened by some crisis or another. He's all for the free market when he's got monopoly power and can crush competitors. He'll support any politician of any party who works in the service of tax cuts and deregulation. And, you know, in terms of my American history in this book, I mean, I lay out how presidential administrations on both sides of the aisle, I mean, going back to Reagan, but through Clinton and Obama, and of course, through Trump and both Bushes, you know, have participated in this deregulation this lifting of antitrust authority, uh, which has allowed large companies to gain monopoly power. And Davos Man will point at any ideas that serve his interests. Well, isn't that the ideology, right, that people have, have really ascribed to? And the reason why I'm thinking about it this way, because of the aspirational allure that I see as a person who works and deals in culture, that so many people aspire to this idea of exorbitant wealth, right? That we, even in hard scrabble communities and places where people kind of have come from nothing, they move to triumph these very same ideas, right? Like I, I love Jay-Z and people who know me know that I'm from Brooklyn through and through, but I do critique him as an example of like what I call like the neoliberal rapper, right? Mm-hmm. Like Hip hop. I'm not a businessman. I'm a businessman. Exactly. Yeah, right. Exactly. Right. Like he is personified that my identity is tied to my ability to make money, which then translates to largesse as I choose to dis, you know, deem it out. And that that same ideology seems to run through this notion of Davos, man. Like they cover their misdeeds by charity and they cloak it in this sort of language, right? I mean, I think Jay-Z has an easier time with the narrative that what he got, he earned against all odds. I mean, I think Americans, you know, we are steeped in this idea, contrary to a lot of data, that it's a land of unlimited opportunity. You know, if you work hard, if you stay out of trouble, if you have a good idea, good things will come to you. And there's supposed to be all this social mobility, though. In fact, there's a lot more social mobility in much of Europe than there is in the U.S. Because it turns out that having a social safety net, I mean, knowing that you'll have health care no matter what, knowing that you'll have some help with housing, 
that you can afford education. These are things that actually give us more dynamism, more entrepreneurialism, you know, not less. But but Americans are really steeped in this idea that we're not nanny state socialists. We don't need big government. And so all of that means that if you haven't made it, that's your fault. That's not, you know, systematic forms of discrimination. That's not uh, continuing uh, racial and gender discrimination. That's just, you know, that's on you, basically. But the point of my book is to note that these ideas didn't come from nowhere. I mean, a lot of that stuff goes deep, you know, to our conception of the frontier and lots of unique characteristics of, of Americans. But they've been very carefully insinuated into our conversation by think tanks financed by the billionaire class, by lobby shops and public relations firms uh, working for billionaires who very carefully given us this idea. You know, I mean, you go back to Reagan, you know, who told us the government's not the solution, government's the problem. I mean, this is just an elaborate way of saying, like, don't take money from billionaires to waste it on things that losers who can't take care of themselves is a defining feature of modern American life. And I, I want to spend a little time like tracing that to, you know, the Gilded Age robber barons of old, right? Like they had similar ideologies that, you know, there's a, this inherent gospel of wealth to the extent that you have money and wealth and power, it is, you know, deemed from on high in a manner of speaking. And if you don't, you're just like one of the low moral masses that just weren't capable of, uh, you know, accumulating wealth. And, right. you know, this history, it, it morphs, it changes, but it, it does run through the vein that leads us to this manifestation of this Davos man, you know? So how do we confront a thought process that seems so interwoven to the fiber of how we just think about things? Right. It's like the two fish. The game, they're in water. They're like, what's water? Right. Right. Yeah. You know, there is no Davos man without the robber barons, but Davos man operates on a whole different level. I mean, the robber barons, as I argue in the book, were by and large content to end up with all the money as the end in itself. They wanted power to protect their businesses and they wanted their businesses to make them incredibly rich and put them at great remove from the rest of society. Yeah, you know, they would slap their names on performing arts centers and university campuses. And this was what passed for public relations back in those days. It was a sort of crude recompense for maybe we've been brutal, shutting down labor uprisings. But, you know, look what we gave you. You're welcome. Now we're going to retreat behind our security perimeter to our palaces. Davos man is asking for us to believe that he is the solution to our problems and that his victories are societal victories. I mean, go back to virtual Davos last year. They couldn't actually meet in Switzerland because of the pandemic. But Mark Benioff, who's one of the five main characters in my book, he's the CEO of this giant tech company, Salesforce. He literally said, CEOs are the real heroes of the pandemic. I mean, he wasn't talking about frontline medical workers. He wasn't talking about parents stuck at home dealing with children, contending with distance learning or essential workers who were delivering our packages, processing our food. He was talking about CEOs. And, and he, he specifically said, you know, they, they gave us vaccines, so the pharmaceutical industry did, and finance uh, staved off bankruptcies. And he said, we did it 
not for profit, but to save the world. He even underscored the point by saying, government didn't save you, non-governmental organizations didn't save you, we saved you, which again is an elaborate form of protection against us, the ordinary people, using the levers of our democracy to impose progressive taxation, antitrust enforcement, labor protections. It's essentially the billionaire class saying, we've got this, you need not monkey around with regulation. You can just let us take care of your problems. In in this language, and you, you have highlighted him as one of the principal's characters, you know, villains, if we can, in, in this book, they use this very spiritualistic language. They talk about the the notion that we can reform capitalism, that it can be changed in some way and and they can continue to do what they do if we just like tweak it around the edges. And, and a lot of counterculture notions are wrapped up in him and others, right. right? And, you know, in a very basic level, like, is this sort of reformation that is proposed even possible? I mean, we have to get over the idea that the billionaires are the solution to our problems. I didn't write this book to demonize people like Mark Benioff or my other four primary characters. I mean, Jeff Bezos, the CEO of Amazon is one of my five prime characters. Look, we we can have the miracle of e-commerce and we can acknowledge that Bezos is a visionary and a genius whose powers of execution in terms of running such a giant company are considerable. And we can count on him to build a logistics network that will incredibly efficiently bring stuff to our door and still say there better be rules that require that the people working in your warehouses have basic protection in a pandemic and that they have paid sick leave and that they have the ability to bargain collectively for their wages so they get a piece of the action. And we can say, Jeff Bezos, thanks for Amazon, but you got to pay your taxes because your business rests on public infrastructure. I mean, the internet, of course, but highways, uh, you depend on graduates coming out of schools uh, to work throughout your enormous enterprise. We don't have to demonize the billionaire class to disabuse ourselves of this notion that we can just outsource all of our problems from climate change to uh, the need to redress uh, racial and, and gender injustice to you know the need to boost the productive capacity of small businesses and to build out our infrastructure like these are problems that we have to solve as a society that will involve government and business but government you know exercised by popular will and so so ultimately I do think we have to see through notions like stakeholder capitalism. This is this idea that Benioff, but not just Benioff, Larry Fink, who's another primary character in my book, he's the he's the head of BlackRock, the world's largest asset management firm. This is a company that manages $10 trillion in assets around the globe. So Fink and Benioff would tell you like the days of Milton Friedmanism and companies just maximizing shareholder value, that's over now. Companies are organized around catering to stakeholders, and stakeholders include labor, never labor unions. They're very careful to not use that term, but labor, local communities, environmental concerns, uh, societal needs. And again, this is their way of saying, please don't regulate us. Please don't tax us. Just let us do what we do, and we will fix life's problems. And we need to get over that and see through that. Yeah, I mean, it, it's... You can't really fix the problems that you are creating, 
right? Like drug dealers are not interested in drug prevention, right? right. They're interested right. in selling more and more narcotics, you know? Right, like, right, right, sure. That's their, that's their job, right? So they're not interested in like helping you get off the drugs. They're helping, they want you to use more of the drugs. So it, it's a challenge to me when we think of, because I think the language that we use is really important. So I always kind of hit those words pretty hard. And I think noting how these systems operate and pushing back against the notions as you described isn't really demonizing. It's just if it's if it's raining and I say it's raining, that doesn't mean that I'm against the weather. Right. right. And if yeah, these, sure. and if these people are operating in a system that is making all of our lives harder, I think it's it's fair game to point that out. Right. And the real estate stuff that you talk about in the book, I think it's particularly of note because having the ability for shelter is one of the most basic needs that human beings have. Sure. And the direction to which we are moving in with a Blackstone and a BlackRock and others is that that's becoming increasingly difficult. You know, we're seeing an, an increasing migrant crisis in Ukraine due to obviously military actions, but we're also seeing similar migratory moves due to climate change sure. and, and a number of other issues. So how do we like call a, a, a spade a spade, to, so to speak? We root out these ideas, you know, the win-win solution, you know, is Davos man loves the win-win solution because if everybody wins, then nobody has to sacrifice. And if nobody has to sacrifice, then it's hard to see how much changes in terms of inequality. I mean, to your, to your point about not looking to the billionaires to deal with inequality, I mean, it, it's not like this is the beginning of the important history. I mean, I, I first came up with this concept of, of writing a book about inequality and the rise of right-wing populism around the globe. I mean, I, I was I was living in London at the time. I was spending a lot of time writing about Brexit, which is a lot of things, but it's it, one key thing is it's a nativist response to declining living standards for most working people. And, you know, much like there's all this attention on the white working class in the States and a key swing group that moves from the from the Democratic column to the Republican column and embracing Trump. There's a similar dynamic in Britain. There's the embrace of extreme right wing politicians in Italy during this time, demonizing immigrants from places like Afghanistan and Africa. And, and in Sweden, the supposed bastion of social democracy, there's a tremendous backlash to a large influx of immigrants fleeing places like Syria and, and Afghanistan. And in each of these cases, there's this um, there's this opportunity for right wing movements. I mean, opportunistic movements that essentially look past decades of bottom up transfers of wealth to the billionaire class. Not again, not just in the States, but in the UK and Sweden and Italy and Germany and France. And on the surface is this backlash to immigration. And I'm in Davos at the World Economic Forum in January 2017. At this point, we're six months into Brexit. Trump's about to be inaugurated. And there's this feeling amongst the billionaire class that boy, you know, the liberal world order is taking a real hit. We've really benefited from globalization. Trump is coming in as this like, you know, wrecking ball aimed at the liberal world order. Brexit's really going to disrupt global flows of money. We better at least understand what's going on. So I spent my time wandering around Davos this year, listening to the billionaires proposing solutions to inequality. And it was all things like, 
uh, you know, I listened to this uh, head of a large Indian consulting firm. Workers have to take more responsibility for their own training so they have better skills. My former boss, Ariana Huffington, who had just launched this wellness website that was aimed at vacuuming up sponsorships from like uh, spa resorts and skin creams. Oh, sleep. Everyone has to sleep more. If everyone sleeps more, that will solve problems. We, we need nicer pillows and better skin creams. I listened to Ray Dalio, who's a hedge funder who's then worth $17 billion, say that the, we needed more deregulation to unleash the animal spirits of the market to create a more conducive atmosphere for making money, which was a strange thing to hear from someone who had somehow managed to amass 17 plus billion dollars. I didn't hear anything involving sacrifice. There was nothing about we need progressive taxation so that we actually give something up so that people who have gotten less and less over the decades can share in some of these opportunities of global capitalism. There wasn't any talk of antitrust enforcement. There wasn't talk of, of rules strengthening collective bargaining. And so that that ultimately, you know, gave me a sort of frame for the book around the idea that you just expressed. Like, I mean, and we don't have to call these guys drug dealers, by the way. Like a lot of these guys are providing, look, we need banks. We need internet companies. Uh, we seem to be entertained by a lot of the services that we encounter. That's all well and good, but we can't expect the people who are benefiting from inequality to just decide of their own volition to give something up. Now they'll tell us that's what they're doing. They're, they they love to talk about philanthropy. They love to show you, you know, the building that they uh, sponsored at their alma mater. They, on their own terms, they love to go to poor countries in South Asia and Africa and mug with children living in states of poverty whose lives are slightly less uncomfortable thanks to whatever you know funding they've delivered for the day. But they're not willing to give up their power, and so that ultimately is on us, the public to pull the levers of our democracy to decide for ourselves what the rules ought to be. And I definitely ag agree that we we have to change the narrative. And I think that language, again, like the word we is bandied about, has become one of my favorite words to try to attack. Because I'm like, who's the we in this equation? Yeah, sure. Right? Like the, the we of Davos, man, and as a acronym moniker, you know, it's very different from the we of of organized labor, the we of communities of color, and, and the list goes on and on and on. So how do we make a differentiation in that we to drive some sort of change away from this this way of of operating? You know, because it's it's very much like a labyrinth. <laughs> right. I mean, again. We have we, by which I mean ordinary people who are not meeting in Davos to forge deals and sharpen up our lobbying and PR campaigns around protecting our wealth, which is to say like 99.9% .9 of the people in developed democracies have to get back to having a say over the conditions of the road. But I mean, we're still going to be dealing with divisions there. I mean, I very much take your point that there are there are not one size uh, fits all solutions to our problems. And, you know, you just think about the ways in which, you know, the white working class in the states 
have essentially been celebrated. You know, their travails somehow seem to count more than other people's. It's not, I mean, I mean, just sort of baked into the cake is the idea that African-American unemployment is going to be twice what white unemployment is. And yet we don't see black Americans coalescing around groups that want to build, you know, walls on the border or, you know, demonize outsiders coming in. Uh, or tear up uh, civil liberties along the way, but somehow we're supposed to accept that, oh, you know, if suddenly white working class people who are making 25 bucks an hour now have to settle for 10 bucks an hour at an Amazon or Walmart warehouse, this is some sort of, you know, deep, grievous uh, threat to humanity that just can't stand. So, I mean, there are going to be divisions in, in terms of our experiences and our perspectives, no matter what, but there are some big commonalities. And one of them is that we simply can't solve any of our problems without progressive taxation. I mean, we, we, can't, we can't continue to uh, have the people who are scrubbing the toilets of billionaires like Jeff Bezos and Steve Schwartzman, who's another primary character in my book, he's a private equity magnate worth $35 billion. We can't have the people scrubbing the toilets paying a greater share of their income and wealth to the federal government than those billionaires without, one, the government not being able to finance basic undertakings like education, like healthcare, like infrastructure, but also just this basic sense of fairness. I mean, we do have large numbers of people in the United States, and my book is global, I mean, throughout much of the developed world, who have concluded, not mistakenly, not without legitimacy, that their needs their abilities to support their families at middle-class standards just don't really matter very much to the people uh, running the system. And that's not sustainable. I mean, that can play out all sorts of ways. We've seen it play out in terms of the embrace of Trump and his you know, very active embrace of, of white supremacists. We've seen this play out in Europe with the rise of the Sweden Democrats in Sweden, this party that was actually goes back to the neo-Nazi movement that's become a mainstream party. Brexit, which is this really grievous act of self-harm that's damaged the the economy for for everyone, again, as this nativist impulse. We can't sustain that, but also we're not going to be able to solve the biggest problems like climate change if most people have concluded rightfully that the people with most of the money are not willing to sacrifice. How do we tell a coal miner in West Virginia, you know, sorry, what you do no longer has value. In fact, it has negative value. And we got to get you to do something else. If that person quite rightfully can say, well, who's going to help me out? Like who, who's going to help my kids go to college? Uh, who's going to help me with housing if I, if I lose my job? How am I going to provide health care for my family? That person is quite rationally looking at the reality that richest among us are not willing to sacrifice and have elaborate armies of lobbyists and campaign consultants and public relations professionals protecting them from basic justice like progressive taxation. Well, why should I sacrifice? And if that person's not going to sacrifice, then how are we can deal with climate change? And, you know, I, I'm glad that you referenced the, you know, the white nationalist movements, the, the this idea of white, white frustration and white grievance, because it's all of those terms do become a shorthand, right? For escalating one person's perspective and view over another. I, I talk about this in a in an essay around like parents, you know, that's like a big thing going on right now in, in the US at least, right? Like all these this idea of parents and school boards have become like really a shorthand for white parents, right? right. They're they're not 
talking about the concerns of Black parents or Latino parents or Asian parents. It's almost always white parents, right? right? And so going in that direction, race is always this thing that is supposed to be outside of these conversations. But yet when you look at the things that we've highlighted, whether it's it's Brexit, you know, if we want to use Reagan, a lot of Reagan's anti-government screeds were allowed to really take root because the face of it was an imaginary Black person that sure. took more from the system than they deserve. The welfare, the welfare queen. queens. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Right. So we've we haven't really dealt with or addressed how much race factors into these conversations. You know, you referenced the Nordic model, right? Right. Um, often hailed as these egalitarian societies, but you see the minute the, the people become browner, then the social services that the society was built upon doesn't really feel so right anymore, right? That, um, uh, that's a really important point. I mean, the, the collectivist impulse, it seems to be, rests heavily on, you know, everybody's got to pray to the same God, have the same color skin, speak the same language. And we've seen, you know, time and again, the collectivist response break down. I mean, when I went to Sweden and listened to these right-wing Sweden Democrats talk about like, oh, no, we're all for taxes and the generous social safety net, but people have to work. And, you know, we just don't feel comfortable with these migrants in our midst who are not going to work. I mean, first of all, this was nonsense because the migrants were eager to work, even the ones who were lesser skilled. I mean, a lot of them were skilled. There were Syrian doctors coming in, teach them Sweden. They're they're good. Teach them Swedish, and and they're good to go. But even like the least skilled had had shown tremendous drive just to get from a place like Afghanistan. I, mean, I spent, spent some time with a teenager who had gotten out of Western Afghanistan, had lived in Iran, you know, squatting, working in construction, had gotten to Germany, and then eventually to Sweden. Like, call this guy whatever you want, but like, this guy's not lazy. This guy's got drive. He doesn't want to be a parasite. He was eagerly trying to train to be an electrician, try to learn Swedish as quickly as he could. And yet in the narrative of the Sweden Democrats, well, this guy's just a leech. He he can't work. Uh, we're just going to be supporting him. And so we now have to cut the social safety net. And the Nordic model works great. Like, train that guy give him some kind of job he can do. He'll have children who will grow up speaking Swedish, paying taxes, able to do whatever they want. I mean, the model works fine. The problem is, to your point about race, once you have that division, that sense of division that's deep triggered, the collectivist response breaks down. And it reminded me actually of um, some reporting I did, I don't know, like 10 years ago in uh, Chattanooga, Tennessee, though I could have been in any sprawling American city, where there were large numbers of unemployed black men who were in downtowns who were stranded, basically, eager to work. I'd go to unemployment offices. I'd meet guys like this constantly, eager to work, but the jobs were out on the suburban fringes and the public transportation networks didn't go there. And so unemployment was being perpetuated by, you know, this lack of public transportation. I remember speaking to a city manager who said, yeah, basically, once there was integration, there was white flight, white people moved to the suburbs. And then it's like, well, we don't need the bus. You know, we've got our minivans. And the bus became a kind of like welfare system on wheels in terms of their 
you know, willingness to pay taxes. So that was part of the tax revolt. Um, and it, you know, it struck me that like Rose Parks, you know, in theory gets to sit on the bus, except there is no bus because once there's integration, then the willingness of white families to finance uh, public spending, to pay for public infrastructure uh, breaks down. And this is a serious problem. Society itself doesn't function unless we see ourselves as a society. And, you know, I don't need to white explain and tell you that no, <laughs> these I mean, divisions are real. No, I mean, it, it's real. But it, it's critical stuff. I mean, even when you're talking about the, the notion of, of taxes, like I think a, a lot of, of this lies within the economic, legal, and philosophical way in which we think about taxes. Right. Taxes is considered largely this burden. You know, we look at, you know, we will say, oh, well, these people don't pay any taxes. And I'm like, everyone pays taxes. Right. If you if you have local you go into a store and you buy something, you've paid some sort of taxes. Right. So we we don't really like connect or what I'd like to do is connect this idea of of taxes with the countervailing notion of austerity. Right. right, where we're not only unwilling to um, tax those who have the most, but we are also cutting social services at the same time because we don't collect enough taxes to to do all these things. And and this idea of it's, it's an idea very rooted in plunder. Right, we have tax evasion, you know, tax avoidance, whatever language they want to use. We have austerity as an idea, right, and a practice. And we see it manifesting in so many different ways, most recently the pandemic crisis, right? Where you see this all coming together. So again, this manifests itself a lot of the way through the thinking of, of Davos man. So I want to like bring taxes and austerity into the conversation. Right. I mean, it's manifest in the thinking of Davos man, again, not by accident, right? So we always seem to have money for tax cuts for billionaires because the billionaires have told us this is how we get innovation. This is how we get economic growth. They always tell us, well, we'll hire more people. We'll invest in more productive plants. And then predictably, what they tend to do is they take the extra money and they give it to themselves in the form of dividends for shareholders, share buybacks, which benefit the shareholder class by making share prices go up executive compensation packages, and they squirrel it away in jurisdictions beyond reach of the tax collector. I mean, this this is like classic, you know, Charlie Brown trying to kick the football, like it gets yanked away every time. Like, this is not a mystery. And yet we do it again and again, and not because of some, you know, false belief. I mean, at places like Davos, like you will hear very earnest panel discussions about this, you know, what is it about us as a society that we can't learn this lesson? Like, it's that the people who are driving this are the people who are getting the money. This idea that I call the cosmic lie, trickle down e- economics, like it works because one part of the equation always predictably happens. The rich people really do end up with more of the money. They just don't do any of the things that they promise us they'll tell us to justify the tax cutting. And yet there's then, as a result, never enough for the stuff that people actually want. So, I mean, polling shows very clearly in the States, we want more health care. We know that education is wildly unaffordable for many people. There are a lot of hardworking kids who, you know, ought to be going to college who they, they can't. They're, they're under pressure to go 
get a job. Their, their families can't take on the debt. They can't qualify for the debt. These are things people actually want. And yet, time and again, we are told by members of Congress who are financed by Davos, man, oh, no, you know, we couldn't, any kind of national health care system, that would bankrupt us. You know, never mind that every other de- developed democracy seems to figure out how to finance kind of national uh, health care. In Britain, again, where I was living as I, as I put together this book, I mean, Brexit was a direct outgrowth of 10 years of austerity where the bankers who helped deliver the great financial crisis of 2008 got bailed out, their assets made whole, taxes cut, the name of spurring investment and all that stuff. Meanwhile, the social safety net just decimated large numbers of people on disability, suddenly not able to qualify, unemployment benefits cut, a housing assistance cut. And so huge numbers of regular people saw their lives get much more difficult and much more perilous while wealthy people were bailed out. In France, Emmanuel Macron, who's a key character in my book, is a Davos man collaborator. You know, He comes in on the promise of lowering wealth taxes for the Davos man who financed his campaign, not least his friend Bernard Arnault, who's the the uh, CEO of Louis Vuitton, uh, the big conglomerate that not only controls Louis Vuitton luggage, but Dom Perignon Champagne and lots of other luxury goods. They finance him. Macron takes office and couples a reduction of wealth taxes with an increase of gas taxes. And Americans who tend to think of Paris and its fantastic public transportation may be surprised to learn that actually France is much like the US and outside of major cities. Most people do rely on their cars to get to work, get their kids to school, you know, all those sorts of things. This is a a real affront to most working people who've also seen their benefits cut. Uh, And the result is the Yellow Vest Movement, which brings Macron very into a very perilous political place that he ultimately recovers from. But this combination of what I call the cosmic lie. I mean, these the magic of tax cuts for rich people combined with austerity. Yeah, they go hand in hand because the austerity is the thing that pays for the tax cuts, but the result is a downgrading of living standards for most people. It's central to the bottom-up transfer of wealth that we've experienced. And what do we do in a society when the system itself feels criminal? And what I mean by that is, it's what I started off with a little bit where this is so much like a labyrinth, right? Where it's almost like we expect these systems to operate in the way in which they do. It's codified into the way that everything happens from a, from a legal perspective, from a financial perspective. You know, I remember when, you know, Hillary and, and Donald Trump were debating and you know, that was a big part of like the liberal project, right? To talk about like, oh, Donald Trump is a cheat and he doesn't pay his taxes. And he was like, fuck right, I don't pay taxes. Like I don't like right. I'm smart, right? Like right. I remember sure. that moment in the de- in the debate, right? Like he's right. like, I'm smart. That's why I don't pay taxes, right? Right. And we embrace that sort of malfeasance as normal, right? That if you're big enough, you're smart enough, you have enough lawyers you've just figured out the loopholes, right? And so what you're doing is not illegal. You're just gaming the systems in the same way I might go to a bar and they're like, hey, we're a cash bar. And I know when I walk into a place as a cash place, they ain't reporting everything that they make. That's why the shit's cash, right? Right, right. So I say all that to say that how do we operate in systems 
to change things when the system itself is based to perpetuate those those things? I, I mean, this is the most difficult question of our time, right? And like the prescriptions for what we need to do, that stuff's pretty simple. We need, and I argue this in my book, right? We need progressive taxation. We need antitrust enforcement. We need rules that make it easier for workers to collectively bargain to increase wages. And we know that that part's simple because we had this before, right? We had from 1945 to 1975, more or less, workers got a commensurate share of the gains of American capital. And we had economic growth and we had the, you know, the old cliche, the rising tide lifts all boats. We actually had that. And don't get me wrong, I don't have a fetish for like the 1950s or 60s. We don't want to go back in time. We also had Jim Crow laws in that period. We had the Vietnam War. We've had a lot of social progress that we need to hang on to and in fact advance. But that one key feature where wage gains flowed from productivity gains throughout the economy, we had that and we need to get that back. Now, saying that is a lot easier than getting that because to your point, the people who control the system are the billionaires who finance the political campaigns. I mean, Amazon has 100 lobbyists in Washington, D.C. That's just real unequal if you're a school board trying to get your piece of the pie, if you're a small business you know, trying to get an even shake from the Department of Justice in terms of fair competition rules. So we're going to have to get money out of politics. I don't have any simple solutions, but we need, we need to reclaim our democracy from the moneyed interests who have uh, taken control. And then there's some things we can do, you know, short of big uh, national change. I mean, at the local level, I mean, I explore in my book something called the Preston model in England, which was a, a, a reaction to austerity where a bunch of uh, local governments around the city of Preston in the, in the northwest of the country joined together and they agreed that when they procure for goods and services, if they're going to build a new police station, if they're going to contract for a company to bring in food to the school system, they have a bias toward local companies as opposed to just sending their wealth out to shareholders in distant places. And that's actually had a pretty significant impact. There's an undertaking in the US called the Anchor Healthcare Network, which is a, a grouping of nonprofit medical providers that collectively have huge amounts of money. They spend something like $75 billion a year. And they've agreed to do a similar thing as the Preston model. Again, you know, uh, Kaiser Permanente uh, builds a new healthcare campus in South Central LA. And they look to contract with with local construction firms. I mean, these are things. This is not going to fix our our problem. Our, our problem is too big. It requires these bigger pieces, but it, it can be part of the solution in terms of just reorienting the flows of money so that more more people benefit. And I think that that sends us in a really interesting direction because one of the things I often try to think about are viable futures in the plural, right? And how do we really start to think about the things that we are doing differently, right? In the earlier part of the conversation, we we you know we, we kind of mentioned, oh, we need banks, we need this. We you know Amazon does an efficient job, and you know one of the things I often wonder, I'm going to pick on Amazon because they're one of my favorite things to pick on. Sure, even though I do use Amazon, so as so do we all. If anyone's yeah. going to call me on that, yes, I use them sometimes, right? <laughs> sure. But I can still point out the issues with a company like Amazon is that. As much as they've sold us collectively on something like efficiency, right? This thing that we're supposed to really want, <laughs> efficiency. 
I find that this shit ain't efficient at all, right? Like they will send me like a, a package with so much junk in it. And then like two days later, if I ordered something together, they'll send me like another box with a whole bunch of other shit in it. And I then I look to myself and I say, this isn't efficient at all, right? Like this actually is incredibly inefficient from the perspective of packaging and waste. I mean, New York City streets are canyons to Amazon packaging. You know, right. if, if you, if you, you know, I grew up in New York and, you know, if you look at garbage bags piled up on the street, you know, the austerity of the seventies. Yeah. I grew and, up in New York in that period yeah. too. Yeah. So, you know what I'm talking about, yeah. right? And, and, but now I walk around and this Amazon boxes piled high, right? Every time they, they put right. out, you know, buildings put out their, their trash, right? As we consume ourselves to death, right? So soliloquy notwithstanding, how do we imagine something different that doesn't include relying on the so-called efficiency of an Amazon or requiring driving, like you mentioned, and other other things like that? So big question, but you get where I'm going. Well, it's about the incentives, right? So, I mean, we are subsidizing freight hauled by trucks. That's part of Amazon's business model, right? Because we don't hefty gas taxes because the fossil fuel industry has a big say in how we write the rules. They write big checks to politicians who reflect their interests in their lawmaking. So that's an effective subsidy to a giant company like Amazon. We don't have a carbon tax. So to your point about the amount of packaging, the number of truck hauls that are required to get their stuff from one place to another. I mean, Amazon's playing within the rules that they're, you know, helping construct through their own lobbying. But I mean, they're efficient in terms of like, you want something at your door quick, they're incredibly good at it. But we're allowing them to not have to factor in like, well, what is the environmental cost for all of us of all of this cardboard that's that now has to be, you know, recycled or moved somewhere? What is the environmental cost of all these trucks on the highway? Because you know, we've built a supply chain, which, by the way, is is the subject of my next book that I'm now working on, uh, which is about the supply chain. There are all of these costs that are not fully reflected. And again, not by accident, but because of lobbying by companies like Amazon. Well, you know, what is the cost to us societally? I mean, for, forget just the humanitarian outrage of huge numbers of warehouse workers, you know, being left to continue to fulfill packages without protective gear in the middle of the pandemic while their managers are off somewhere else, you know, safely in their homes, doing their jobs via Zoom. But what's the cost to all of us as COVID spreads as a result of this? I mean, what is the cost to us as a society when huge numbers of kids have had their educations disrupted for years and their parents are unable to do their own jobs because they're stuck dealing with kids who should be in school, who are now, you know, maybe on Zoom, maybe not. I mean, these are all baked into the business as usual that has been Amazon's efficient operation because of our unwillingness to protect workers, to have paid sick leave policies, to have enforcement of antitrust. I mean, Amazon, it turns out, by the way, 
uh, prioritized while they were telling us that that their workers were essential and we should celebrate them for saving other people's grandmothers, even while they were themselves vulnerable to the pandemic. You know, they didn't have hand sanitizer, but we were sending it to people who needed it. It turned out that they were actually prioritizing their own monopoly logistics network. I mean, it, the merchants who were trying to get stuff to our doors, if they weren't willing to work with Amazon's logistics network for delivery, they went to the back of the queue and there were actually delays in the system as Amazon tried to use the pandemic to carve further into the UPS and the FedEx business models and build up their own logistics network. So they're not even living by you know their own espoused standards. Oh, and by the way, Jeff Bezos signed the stakeholder capitalism pledge you know, put together by the business roundtable in the summer of 2019. I mean, we just can't have faith in these companies regulating themselves. We need to regulate them. But they do rely on the language and the thinking of faith, right? Because when we when we push back, and I and I've and I've seen this so much, right? Like when we push back on these people, we kind of get to use, you know, a little bit more hip hop language. Like, are we all being haters? Like, right. we just hating on the party. This is how the game is, right? Right. And that's a tough, it's not a tough argument if you're really willing to go into policy, but in a in a world that makes might right and, you know, galvanizes all this energy around wealth and wealth creation. And we're, you know, contemporaries, right? Lifestyles of the rich and famous. Like all right. of these things might be pop culture, but they really affect the way in which we view the world, right? Well, I mean, to come full circle, like part of my book focuses on the World Economic Forum itself, right? And this meeting in Davos. And I think most of us can see through the artifice, uh, you know, the absurdity of the richest people in the world meeting at the top of a mountain in Switzerland under the mantra committed to improving the state of the world when they are the ultimate beneficiaries of the status quo, right? And, you know, I've seen billionaires engage in simulations of the Syrian refugee experience and like they submit to being blindfolded and led around in the dark while someone's hollering at them in Arabic for papers. And then they all congratulate one another for their empathy. And then they go off to, you know, some banquet thrown by a global bank where they eat caviar and drink champagne. We can all see that that's all kind of ridiculous. And even while it may be titillating, but the central idea of Davos, man. I mean, I think it's the ultimate sort of false binary that we can either have the world as it is with inequality, you know, warts and all. We get Uber, we get Google, we get vaccines to protect us against COVID, but Jeff Bezos ends up with most of the money. We can either have that, Davos man will tell us, or we can be Venezuela, you know, where we're like diving into dumpsters for our dinner and we don't have any healthcare at all. So we should be grateful for what we've got. And we should understand that the people who are benefiting, they worked harder, they're smarter, they're better people, and the rest of us ought to try to be better. You know, that is the central fallacy that Davos man uses to protect himself from us waking up to what's actually going on and saying, well, hold, hold on, time out. We can have COVID vaccines. And let's remember, a lot of our COVID vaccines have been produced via publicly financed research. And we can have a say about who gets those vaccines. We can have COVID vaccines and see an end to the pandemic and still insist that you know Pfizer and their CEO, Albert Borla, also signed the stakeholder capitalism pledge. 
does not just sell these medicines to the highest bidders around the world such that we now have a situation where most of humanity isn't anywhere near protection. We've got frontline medical workers in South Asia, parts of Africa, who are still treating COVID patients without protection while we're giving boosters to, you know, anybody who walks into a Walgreens or CVS in, in America, we can say that's wrong and still have the wonder, you know, we can have Amazon, we can have e-commerce, we can have technology, and we can still insist that billionaires pay their taxes, that we have healthcare for people, that it's possible for, for anybody to go get a university education. We need to get past this false binary that's been foisted on us by Davosman as a prophylactic against us exercising our basic democratic rights to create a kind of capitalism that's fair. Yeah. And I, I think when when you're talking about the the notions of the vaccine and things like that, and we're seeing this also in the Ukraine, like I mentioned at the beginning of the show, right? As a as the refugees as a refugee crisis continues to unfold at every moment that we're speaking, there are divisions within that refugee crisis, right? Where sure. there are people of color, African students, Asian students that are excluded from evacuation, even at the same time that Ukrainians are are being evacuated. And we can have uh, sympathy for that situation, but can't divorce ourselves from the reality of a racialized system that separates these two realities, even the way that conflict is is presented to the world, right? As a freedom-fighting group of people against uh, ongoing, you know, despot, while other communities of colors, whether those are Palestinians or Afghans or are others that are facing similar situations, those challenges are not embraced in the same way. So there's a need to reject that dichotomy as presented by Davos Mann, but we also have to embrace something new, right? That's right. going to be more inclusive and have allow us to have harder conversations. How do we do both of those things? Then I'm going to ask one more question and we're going to get to the final two parts of the Oh, show. no, no. That's, that, that, that's a really important point that you're making. Uh, first of all, I couldn't agree more with your, your point about the Ukrainian refugee crisis. Yes, our hearts should go out to any refugee. And what people in Ukraine are, are suffering is, 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 is it's horrific. And, and how can we look at the spectacle of, you know, was it half a million people on the move and not have our hearts torn? And at the same time say, boy, this looks different than when you have huge numbers of people from Somalia, from Ethiopia, from Libya, streaming onto the shores of, of Italy. I mean, we, we got to acknowledge that there's a racial dimension to our treatment of refugees, depending on the, and by the way, this is a familiar story, right? Like the light-skinned Cubans welcomed into America, dark-skinned Cubans get put on boats and sent back. I mean, this, this, is, a, this is a familiar- And Haitians uh, not allowed at all. <laughs> Haitians not allowed at all. That's right. And Haitians still have to pay reparations that go back to, you know, French colonialism, putting down, you know, a rebellion of slaves. Uh, so th- this is, there is no, I mean, I'm saying something that just seems so obvious that it need not even be said. Th- there is no social justice without reckoning with race. My book is the beginning of the conversation. It doesn't pretend to be the end of the conversation. I mean, if we can restore things like labor rights, antitrust, progressive taxation, that's the beginning of, you know, just simply getting back what we've already lost in terms of just outsourcing 
our basic democratic functions to Davos, man. But, you know, there's no question that any conversation about real progress in the U.S. has to reckon with a very deep and enduring legacy of of systematic uh, racial repression. And white fragility is real. And it's a serious problem. I mean, I'm, I'm seeing it just in terms of my own kids, you know, and not just in the States, but even back in London, you know, this reaction to supposed critical race theory and, you know, oh, we can't hurt the feelings of white families by teaching them about uh, Black Lives Matter, to say nothing of Jim Crow or s- slavery. I mean, I look, my that's beyond the scope of my book, but these are conversations we got to have because yeah, absolutely, I mean, we, we've got to be comfortable being uncomfortable. Yeah. Uh, and I mean, I, you know, it sounds like you and I grew up in a similar time in New York. I mean, as a white kid growing up in New York, I think I think the message of the, you know, those of us in the North, post Jim Crow, I, I'm just speaking personally, absorbed this idea that the whole concept of race was to just say like, hey, we're all the same. You know, everybody's equal. OK, we're good now. Right. So now let's just pretend that like there aren't any racial divisions. Let's just be nice to everybody and then everything's great. And, you know, that's like nonsensical. Right. Yeah. I mean, I mean, it's just it's it's nonsensical. And, and so we we have to teach our children about the realities of race. I mean, I mean, white families have to have to shoulder, you know, the burdens of actually reckoning with the history and the present. And it, until we do that, we're going to be dealing with some very profound divisions that will make it difficult for us to function collectively as a society. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, I, I love that you weaved a lot of this into the book. Like you said, your book isn't expressly about these things, but these things are all bubbling under the surface, right? And as someone who who lives in these communities and, you know, former Wall Street guy and all of it, I feel like I've had a front lines to a lot of this since like, you know, long-term capital when I was an intern was like one of the first shots across the bow of, you know, this whole system can just fall apart at any moment. Right. And then we've seen it like cascade and cascade and cascade. And we keep seemingly to push off the inevitable, you know, but I think it's important to, you know, really talk about how some of the limitations of what we can imagine is still anchored by the ways in which we have divisions going on that of the type that you just described. So I want to ask you one last question and then sure. we're going to get to the final two segments of the show. Sure. Um, you know, this idea of Davos, man, happens at Davos, right? Like it's this this huge thing. And when you describe going into the going into these rooms and having these conversations, you know, it, it reminded me very much of the Black Mirror episode, 15 million credits, right? Where they like are working and operating in this system that they know doesn't work for them, but they're like riding this bike. Right. It's, hmm. it's a very poignant episode. For me. So well, anyway, I haven't seen it. I got to watch it. Yeah, definitely watch that episode. So I, I want to get you out on, on this one before we get to the, the drop and, and off the dome, which is being in these rooms and, and kind of seeing the absurdity of that you talked about. Right. Like we really got to change the world. But I'm like sipping the caviar, eating the caviar and all that kind of stuff. Like how does one like manage that dichotomy of being in that sort of a philosophical absurdity while also being that, hey, you know, this is pretty cool, right? <laughs> like, you know, in the sense that, you know, I've been to the Met Ball and people can say it's a extravagant waste of time. But I'm like, when I was there, the drinks were cool and it was kind of nice being around like a lot of cool, interesting people, <laughs> <Sure>. right? <laughs> so how does one like balance that is I my mean- question. 
I'm not going to, you know, I'll, I'll be blunt. Like, uh, yes, I've availed myself of, you know, the perks of being there. I've gone skiing in Davos. That was a lot of fun. I went to Mark Benioff's uh, Hawaiian-themed party where he flew in the Black Eyed Peas, and I stood right below the stage. You know, look, you, you can have some fun in Davos, and more than fun, you actually learn a lot of stuff. There are all kinds of smart people there. Again, there are academics, there are activists, there there's the odd celebrity, there are people from all sorts of non-governmental organizations who have a lot to teach us, who are in, involved in, in really important work. But- I, you know, I've been there, I think, nine times. You, you're never losing sight, uh, or at least I'm ne- I've never been able to lose sight of of the, the sort of horrifying sham that we're participating in. And so I've tried to use it as a vehicle for journalism that strikes some people in Davos as rude, right? I, I will call BS on the on the proceedings. I, I remember going years ago, you know, to your point about like, can we expect drug dealers to help us solve the drug crisis? I actually sat this panel discussion, the CEOs of large pharmaceutical companies all gathered to discuss what to do about the unaffordability of prescription drugs. And they were like, well, we need to study it more. We, we need to have multi-stakeholder dialogues and uh, perhaps, you know, we haven't struck the right business models. It's like, come on, guys. And then there's some CNBC moderator who's very earnestly, you know, holding this discussion. We're all committed to improving the state of the world, right? So if you're in the room, yeah, well, you're part of the solution. You guys know what's going on. Like you buy companies to get the patents so you can jack up the prices as much as you possibly can because you work for the shareholder. That's the re- So the whole thing is a sham. So I just try to keep my eye on that while, you know, yes, finding a minute to go have a wine-themed cocktail with Mark Benioff and meet whoever happens to be in the room as a kind of lighthearted, you know, take the edge off experience. Absolutely. And and, and I promised that was my last one, but I got to do a quick follow-up, which will get us right to Off the Dome. Sure. Like, why do these billionaires have f- such fucking shit taste in music? Black Eyed Peas. <laughs> And then, like, you mentioned, like, Schwartzman, like, Gwen Stefani. I'm like, it's not even, like... Patti oh, LaBelle. Like, yeah, I'm like, you know, I yeah. love Patti LaBelle. Yeah, I, I know. Everybody you know, and Patti. I like Gwen Stefani, too. But, yeah, like, sure. this is not peak, like, Gwen Stefani, right? This is, like, Gwen Stefani not having had a hit for, like, a decade, Gwen That's Stefani. Right? Actually, he had Rod Stewart, if you want to yeah, get like, further back. Yeah, why at, are at his, they I think so his 60th corny? birthday party. You know, they're creatures of their own lives. Benioff, you really hurt Benioff's feelings, actually, if I heard you say that. It, like, he, he likes to hang out with uh, the Metallica drummer, Lars Lars Ulrich. Ulrich? Yeah, his Twitter feed is full of pictures of him, like, on, on his own yacht with Lars Ulrich. Metallica ain't made a good album since, like, the Black Album. Like, that was, like, 1991, <laughs> and all their records since then have been, like, trash. Even though Lars Ulrich is a great drummer, but I'm just like, dude. Your yeah, musical taste is. Horrible. I don't think Davos Man is into Biggie Smalls. <laughs> no, <laughs> definitely not. Definitely not. So that gets us into Off the Dome, which are just some rapid fire questions. And I have three of them. All right. So my first Off the Dome is I need you to rank these folks from terrible to most terrible. <laughs> right. <laughs> so that's the range. Right. And I'm going to just pick four of, well, actually, I'm going to only do three. Okay. Of, of the people that we've kind of talked about. So we got Jamie Dimon, yeah. <laughs> you know, got Schwartzman, and we got Bezos. From terrible to most terrible. Where do they wow. fall? Wow, this is very difficult. Um, <laughs> I mean, I gotta, I guess I gotta put Bezos at the top of the list. I mean, we're we're talking in a time where 
you know, my book ends with Bezos thanking his warehouse workers for sending him into space. Yeah. Right? Five and a half billion dollars, right? Spent so Jeff Bezos can go to space. And he's not content to just simply bag the experience. Oh, look at me. I'm up here in space for a few seconds and I'm going back to Earth. No, I'm going to thank everyone because this is part of human progress. I mean, this is at a time where five and a half billion dollars could pay for a lot of vaccines, even if we're willing to pay the monopoly, you know, royalties to Pfizer and Moderna without uh, having the public get something for its publicly financed research. So that you, you would think, well, that would be hard to top. But then after the book comes out, this is right now, you know, we're in the midst of this great supply chain crisis where people can't get ventilators, people still can't get protective gear, there's all sorts of consumer goods and short supply. And the city of Rotterdam, Europe's largest port, is currently mulling should we move a bridge that happens to be in the way of Jeff Bezos's $500 million, 400 plus foot yacht built at a shipping ground in the Netherlands so we can get out to the open sea? So at a time in the midst of the pandemic, supply chain disruption, Ukraine being invaded by Russia, there are people in Rotterdam, Europe's largest port, actually having meetings about how to help J Jeff Bezos's yacht get out to sea. I mean, if, if uh, Adam McKay stuck that in a movie, people would say, oh, that's ridiculous. We, we'd never believe that. So Jeff Bezos has got to be at the top of the list. Uh, now, Schwartzman gets, you, you have to let Schwartzman off the hook in that he's the least Davos man of the Davos men. I mean, yeah, he, he will tell you that like he bought all these foreclosed homes in the States and flipped them, you know, not for profit, but to fix up communities and restore them for families to live in. Whatever. It's sort of a half-hearted narrative. I mean, Schwartzman is a guy who's very good at making money. He goes where there's money and he gets a piece of the action. But, you know, he invests heavily in healthcare in the run-up to the pandemic. And he's really at the center of the story that we haven't talked about of how, you know, how does the U.S. end up with a third fewer uh, hospital rooms in the 20 years before the pandemic. Well, it's because people like Steve Schwartzman have turned healthcare into an industry that's not a hell of a lot different from, you know, Starbucks or McDonald's or an airline, you know, like the airline wants a butt in every seat. They don't want empty seats in the air. Uh, well, if you're running a, a, a hospital, you want every hospital room filled. And that's what, how we limited capacity and how we ended up, even though we're the richest, most powerful country on earth, being totally overwhelmed by a pandemic that we actually saw coming for months before it hit our shores. So, you know, I guess I'd stick Schwartzman there. Diamond is just so predictable that I guess he he comes into the third spot. You know, he's okay. just consistently for tax cuts. He he ran the business roundtable at the time that it played a leading role in getting Trump's package of tax cuts worth $1.5 trillion, most of the goods lavished on people like Jamie Diamond and Steve Schwartzman. Yeah, I guess that's how I'd rank them. Okay. That's a lot of terribleness there, though. So, you know, <laughs> it's I a lot to explain. It's yeah. a lot to, to go through. But OK, best billionaire layer. Is it something built inside of a volcano, a private island or a space station like the guy in contact? If people haven't seen that movie. So now we're just fantasizing. Yeah, this is fantasizing. This is not oh, like where they live. Yeah. I mean, I, I guess like I like where the guy in The Incredibles lived, yeah. you know, like the evil guy. That seemed like a pretty good setup. Uh, I guess that was there was a volcano involved. Yeah, in there's like a volcanic so, kind of mountain thing. Yeah, that seems pretty good. That. I'm for okay. that. And if you can own 
one billionaire toy. You know, they love to collect all this bullshit, right? Yachts and helicopters and sports teams and yeah. whatever. What would that be if you could just have one of their bullshit things? Look, I got little kids. So, like, every time I get on an airplane, I'm like, hmm, the way uh, Jay-Z and Beyonce do it, that looks pretty good. You know, I, I, I'd i like a plane. I think I think a plane could come in handy. I mean, you're sitting in Tampa. I imagine that I don't know what the details of your flight were, whether it amounts to a story. But you go to an airport nowadays, if, if you're not flying a private, which is not something that I ever do, it's no, no matter what you business class, first class, upgrades, premium economy, I, you know, I don't care. There's some suffering involved. So yeah. I'd get my family out of that. Yeah, it's not the most pleasant experience. And I'll spare all the listeners my travels <laughs> adventure to get to get down here a few days ago. Um, so I want to get us into the drop. And the, and the drop is is simply a recommendation or recommendations of anything at all that our listeners should be paying attention to or they might want to check out. And I have two. I'll go first, as is the new tradition, because I used to ask people, do you want me to go first or do you want to go first? They always opted for me. So now I just do it. Just do it. <laughs> take, the, take the pressure off. And so I have two drops this week, and they're both music, um, music related. The first one is um, musical artist, funk impresario, and really amazing personality, Betty Davis, recently passed away. I think is at a time we're recording this. I think she died maybe two, three weeks ago from the time that we're, we're recording this right now. And she was really such an amazing visionary and artist and you know, has such incredible impact beyond the music that she's that she released and then sort of disappeared for decades. But very recently, as there's been an interest in um, like Afrofuturistic music and and kind of looking at some of these pioneers, um, there's been like a movement toward re reengaging with her music. And then, like I said, she's subsequently passed away. Mm. But for listeners who want to like dive into her work, there's a pretty good documentary on Amazon Prime, speaking of Bezos, that talks about her life, her music, her impact, um, the time she spent with Miles Davis, and so on and so forth. So definitely want to link us to the work of, of Betty Davis. And then my other musical drop is an album that I continuously come back to all the time. It's one of my favorite records ever. And that's um, Alanis Morissette's Jagged Little Pill. Hmm. Um, just, I don't know, it's a record that I can't shake 25 years plus later, and I'm still constantly listening to that record. So those are my two drops. Okay. Uh, well, that's a high bar. You know, look, I'm a guy who's, who's like selling one book and writing another one and has little kids. So my life's not really that interesting. And there's a dearth of culture in my life. But I did just listen to a really cool podcast called The Line which is uh, it's Alex Gibney's company, Jigsaw Productions. And it's the story of uh, Eddie Gallagher, the Navy SEAL who got accused of stabbing an ISIS uh, captive to death in Iraq. And it's uh, the story of the sort of culpability of the whole culture of the SEALs and the question of where the line is when we send people into battle with a mission to basically kill as many of the people as as they as they can and to and to think of themselves as good posited against evil uh, and it's a deep exploration of the kind of the real societal culpability in this and it's it, it's just a very very well put together a documentary pod that I that I'd recommend do I have to come up with another one no one is fine okay, one okay is fine. there's no yeah. there's no yeah. um, limit 
but yeah. one is is cool. And that actually sounds super interesting, particularly because they've there were two recent SEAL deaths during their training. I think again, like two three weeks ago, like two SEAL aspirants passed away. Oh, and my Apple Music surfed up um, an Ann Nesby uh, Al Green cut that I had never heard called "Put It on Paper" that I thought was really fantastic. No, see, we got two yeah. out of it. Okay, this, this is this has been awesome, man. I really, you know, like I said, the book was infuriating in all the best ways. So, um, you, you have a winner on your hands. I, I love reading it, and I want to thank so you for being on the deep dive. Oh well, thank you so much for your great questions. I really enjoyed this. Thank you, thank you. Take care now. You can listen to The Deep Dive via Apple Podcasts and our website, thedeepdivepod.com. Download, subscribe, listen, and share. If you like what you're hearing and enjoy what me and the team are putting together, then leave us a review. We'd love to hear from you. You can follow me on Twitter via at FarFlungPhil. To all my listeners, wherever you are in the world, I thank you. See you on the other side.